Welcome to KUOW's Speakers Forum. I'm your host, John O'Brien. In this extra episode, if you're familiar with the Dear Sugar advice column, you know who Steve Almond is. For the uninitiated, he was the first sugar, a purportedly female advice columnist on the website The Rumpus. After a while, Almond says, that got weird. When he was ready to pass the sugar torch, Almond asked the not-yet-famous author Cheryl Strayed to take over. She agreed to and ran with the column in unique ways. In late 2014, the pair joined forces to launch the Dear Sugars podcast. Their combined efforts in advising all sorts of troubles have attracted a loyal base of lost, lonely, and heartsick fans. Their promise is an offering of radical empathy. The wisdom of their advice is often commented on. Almond's new book of essays is Bad Stories, What the Hell Just Happened to Our Country. As he explains here, Trumpism is a bad outcome of, quote, the bad stories we tell ourselves. His exploration of what exactly he means by that, for example, the statement, America is a representative democracy being a bad story, is worth a listen. Steve Almond read from Bad Stories and chatted with Seattle author Peter Mountford and the audience at the Fireside Room at Hotel Sorrento on February 28th. Hugo House hosted the event. Please note, this recording contains unedited language of an adult nature. Here, Peter Mountford introduces Steve Almond. So it's my great pleasure to introduce my friend uh, and the great author, Steve Almond, who is the author of eight books of fiction and nonfiction, including the New York Times bestsellers Candy Freak and Against Football. His short stories have been anthologized widely in Best American Short Stories, The Pushcart Prize, Best American Erotica, and Best American Mystery Series. His essays and reviews have appeared in the New York Times Magazine, the Boston Globe, the Washington Post, and elsewhere. He teaches at the Neiman Fellowship for Journalism at Harvard University and hosts the New York Times podcast, which some of you may have heard of, called Dear Sugars, with another writer named Cheryl Strayed. And please welcome Steve. Hi. So this is actually the fr uh, thank you for being here, and hopefully you have started drinking. Um, I'm not going to read a long time because I just this is a bar, and I don't want to read a long time. Um, but uh, I will read a little bit just to give you a sense of what the book is about, uh, real quickly. I wrote it um, pretty much. I've been I think writing in my head for a long time, but uh, after the election, I really spent a lot of time lying in a pool of my own dread and realized that I was going to need to do something to try to explain how we got here. Um, and so then I just started writing the book and wrote a draft that was just terrible, very aggrieved, very angry, very muddled and confused, uh, and which some people were kind enough to point out to me. <laughs> and then I revised it and, and uh, well, I'll, I'll just read a little bit. Uh, so this book originally carried a different and rather more grandiose subtitle. It was called Bad Stories Toward a Unified Theory of How It All Came Apart. 
I ultimately chose a simpler phrase, one that captures something of the bewilderment and exasperation so many Americans feel. Now it's called Bad Stories, What the Hell Just Happened to Our Country. <laughs> it's a bit more on the nose. Um, but I mentioned the first subtitle to emphasize the nature of my undertaking. I'm not offering a single theory or even a set of theories as to how our democracy fell apart. I'm working toward a synthesis of theories. The ascension of, of Donald Trump to the presidency is certainly the impetus for this investigation, but it should not be mistaken for my subject. In fact, I've been tracking the odd and lurching course of, of our democracy for most of my adult life. Uh, mazel tov. Uh, <laughs> I've pursued this interest not as an academic, a historian, or a political scientist, but as a reporter, and more recently, a fiction writer. That makes me a storyteller, technically, though I feel more often like a woozy and puzzled student of the American story. I place my faith in stories because I believe them to be the basic unit of human consciousness. The stories we tell and the ones we absorb are what allow us to pluck meaning from the rush of experience. Only through the patient interrogation of these stories can we begin to understand uh, where we are and how we got here. In his elegant 2014 book, Sapiens, A Brief History of Humankind, I don't know if anyone's read that book, it's uh, pretty phenomenal. The Israeli historian uh, Yuval Noah Harari insists that our species came to dominate the world because we learned to cooperate flexibly in large numbers. This capacity, he contends, stems from our unique cognitive ability to believe in the imagined to tell stories that extend our bonds beyond clan loyalties. Our larger systems of cooperation, whether spiritual, political, legal, or financial, require faith in a beautiful fiction known as the common good. Uh, the sort of uh, mutual trust expressed in any trade agreement or currency. For most of our history, human beings relied upon folklore and religious parable to conceptualize the common good. But much of our progress as a species is a function of cultures shifting from superstitious stories to verifiable ones, as happened during the scientific revolution of the 16th century. Our embrace of reason and empiricism has saved a lot of people from dying of illness and starvation. It has led to a standard of living within many precincts of the world that would have been unimaginable in previous epochs. It has not, however, changed the fact that we still choose the stories by which we construct reality. What happens then when some of the stories we tell ourselves are bad, bad stories, meaning fraudulent either by design or negligence? What happens when the stories we tell ourselves are frivolous or when we ignore stories that are too frightening to confront? What happens when we fall under the sway of stories intended to sow discord, to blunt our, our moral imaginations, to warp our fears into loathing, and our mercy into vengeance? The principal argument of this book is that bad stories lead to bad outcomes. I agree with Harari when he argues that our faith in stories ha has been integral to our survival as a species, but I also believe that this capacity poses the central risk to our species, and that the 2016 election is an object lesson in just how much harm bad stories can inflict upon even the sturdiest democracy. A simpler way of saying this would be that bad stories arise from an unwillingness to take reality seriously. If bad stories become pervasive enough, they create a new and darker reality. 
Uh, so this is kind of like the feel bad read of the year is what this is. <laughs> I'm now realizing. Uh, I'm, I'm sort of portraying this theory of bad stories as a kind of, as, you know, sort of sophisticated literary analytic. It, it's something closer to a kind of rhetorical panic room is really what it is for me. Um, and so um, the, the basic idea is that the book is divided, rather than being divided into chapters, it's divided into bad stories. Uh, like a bad story would be America is a representative democracy. That's a verifiably false story. It's not. It never was. You know, it was conceived with the idea that it was a representative democracy, but if you were, say, an African-American or a woman, it was not a representative democracy, right? Or an indentured servant. Um, uh, and it's also a book that, because I sort of come at life through literature, is sort of what happened, what the hell just happened through the lens of literature. Uh, so I use Orwell and James Baldwin and um, Joseph Conrad and uh, all sorts of different writers, uh, Ray Bradbury and Vonnegut, to try to kind of understand and explain how we got here. Um, and one of the writers who was really foremost in this was Melville. So I'm going to read just a little bit more, and then uh, hopefully Peter has a question or two, then hopefully you guys have a, maybe a question or two, and then we're done. Okay, <laughs> then we all get just shit-faced. All right. As I struggled to make sense of the 2016 election, my mind kept spiraling back to one particular scene in American literature. Ahab perched upon the quarterdeck of the Pequod, a, quote, grand, ungodly, godlike man with a prosthetic leg fashioned from a whale's jawbone. The captain has come to announce the true nature of his mission, which is not economic in nature, but deeply personal. He seeks revenge against the Leviathan that maimed him and exhorts his crew with a soliloquy Trumpian in pitch, if not diction. Here's what he says. This is Ahab, not Trump. All visible objects are but pasteboard masks. If man will strike, strike through the mask. How can the prisoner reach outside except by thrusting through the wall? To me, the white whale is that wall, shoved near to me. Sometimes I think there's naught beyond, but tis enough. He tasks me, he heaps me. I see in him outrageous strength with an inscrutable malice sinewing it. That, I think, is what ardent supporters see in Trump. Outrageous strength with an inscrutable malice sinewing it. This inscrutable thing is chiefly what I hate, and be the white whale agent or be the white whale principal, I will wreak that hate upon him. Talk not to me of blasphemy man. I'd strike the sun if it insulted me. Or maybe, like, mean tweet the sun. It is this volcanic sense of grievance that fuels Melville's saga that binds the crew of the Pequod, a coterie of races and temperaments, immigrants and exiles, to their leader. Quote, Ahab's quenchless feud seemed mine, Ishmael tells us rather helplessly. Who can blame the kid? Ahab is something like a natural force, a vortex of vindication as mighty as the beast he pursues. Not even... Um, 
Not even the prophecies of his own mystical harpooner can moderate his impulses. After four years of maniacal pursuit, Ahab spots his enemy and attacks. It does not go well. This is kind of a spoiler alert for those of you who are really meaning to read <laughs> Moby Dick, but are really not going to read it. So I just am going to ruin the end. It does not go well. The wounded whale smites the Pequod, drowning all aboard and rendering the ship a hearse. In the end, quote, possessed by all the fallen angels, Ahab himself pierces the pale flank of his nemesis with his, with his harpoon. In the process, the, roop, the rope winds up noosed around his neck and the beast drags him down to his fate. Even a passing skyhawk gets snagged in the wreckage, quote, this is the end of the book, and so the bird of heaven with archangelic shrieks and his imperial beak thrust upwards and his whole captive form folded in the flag of Ahab went down with his ship, which, like Satan, would not sink to hell till she had dragged a living part of heaven along with her and helmeted herself with it. Melville is offering a mythic account of how one man's virile bombast can ensnare everyone and everything it encounters. The setting is nautical, the language epic, the allusions biblical and Shakespearean, but the tale stripped to its ribs is about the seductive force of the wounded male ego and how naturally a ship steered by men might tack to its vengeful course. The plot of Moby Dick pits man against the natural world, but its theme pits man against his own nature. The election of 2016 was, in its way, a retelling of this epic. Whether you chose to cast Trump as agent or principal hardly matters. What matters is that Americans joined the quest, whether in rapture or disgust, we turned away from the compass of self-governance and towards the mesmerizing drama of aggression on display, the capitalist id unchained and all, that it, and all that it unchained within us. Trump struck through the mask and it was enough. When I started writing this book in the months after the election, I was furious and frightened, worn down by decades of disappointment and determined mostly to launch harpoons at those I imagined to be my adversaries. That, too, is a part of this story. The great peril of our age is not that we have turned into a nation of Ahabs, but of Ishmaels, passive observers, too willing to embrace feuds that nourish our rancor and starve our common sense. It is this Manichaean outlook that laid the groundwork for the ascent of Donald Trump and has, as of this writing, sustained his chaotic reign. I am struggling in these pages to see Trumpism in a different light, as an opportunity to reckon with the bad stories at the heart of our great democratic experiment and to recognize that often embedded within these bad stories are beautiful ideals and even correctives that might help us to contain the rage that has clouded our thoughts. I've taken a, pa a patchwork approach to this project, one that knits statistical data, personal anecdote, cultural criticism, literary analysis, and when called for, outright intellectual theft. I'm trying in, yeah, it's sort of funny in a sad way, okay. I'm trying in the broadest sense to understand how the American story arrived at this point. I've taken Ishmael as my guide here, for, wha for while it's true that he falls under the spell of Ahab's folly, as did I, as did I. He also, he is also its only surviving witness and chronicler 
the voice left to impart whatever wisdom might be dredged from the deep. Amid the spectacle of a mad captain and his murderous query, we mustn't forget that Moby Dick is a parable about our national destiny in which the only bulwark against self-inflicted tyranny is the telling of the story. So that's kind of like the gist of it-ish. Um, and uh, at any rate, maybe Peter has questions, I hope. Or somebody has questions. Does this, it does work, how delightful, and that one will be yours. You can okay. liberate it from that. There we go. It is liberated. Uh oh. This is, the, oh, there This you go. very much has a feeling of a kind of bar mitzvah crowd. <laughs> <laughs> All right, the horror, let's do it. My version has the old subtitle. Um, and uh, Before the publisher interceded and said, that sounds academic and boring. Oh, really? Yeah. I, I liked it, though. I mean, I liked this idea um, of kind of um, toward a unified theory, just because I think in the best way possible, the book is kind of all over the place. You have anecdotes from your life. You have these. Sounds like a blurb. It does. I mean, we have to quote that and put it on it. No. Uh, it, uh, it, you know, anecdotes from your life. It has, as you can tell now, there's a lot of literature within it. Um, there's stuff from the news. There's, it's all, all over the, there's all this material that kind of comes into it. And um, you talk about journalism, your reverence for it, your problems with it. Um, and I think it just, it's all there. It's just, in a way, it's like, this is what we're looking at, all the pieces. Right. But there's not yet a, um, it's not a single story, unfortunately. That would be simple. It's a lot of stories. And it's kind of, is disassembled. And I wondered about, I mean, I sort of like that about it, that it's kind of, um, yeah, that it's bad stories, plural, um, that are, you can't unify them into a single story. Yeah, I kind of wish you could, but you can't. So there are all these books that come out when something happens that feels big and calamitous and, and it sort of says, ah, here's the problem. Right. Uh, and you just can't. Too many things were colliding. Things as old as the story of race, uh, which was a constructed story, you know, to, to keep poor people from <laughs> figuring out who their real oppressors were and a story that started long before there was even a United States, but that's continued to be a powerful force within it. I mean, you can't ignore the Electoral College, which is like voting by slave owner math. Uh, you can't ignore the persistent efforts at voter suppression. You can't ignore the ways in which uh, there's been a determined effort to suppress the votes in lots of different ways because they're, you know, they're determinant. They're how a minority party with policies that most people don't approve of kind of keep their hammer lock on power, right? Mm -hmm. When people talk about how you know f a, a fascist government like the Nazis came to power, it wasn't because they suddenly were a majority, it's because they exercised power more brutally and more efficiently. So there's, you know, there's that kind of element which I think is a part of the story you have to talk about. But there's also parts of it that have to do with, for instance, um, our American compulsion to turn everything into entertainment. Mm. And that exists across the board, just as uh, the sort of modern uh, right wing is attempting to portray America as a horror movie, right, where there's always some dark whore, dark-skinned horde around the corner who's ready to take your jobs, take your li life, take your, you know. Um, there is, on the left, a tendency to view 
what's happening as a farce. And I love John Stewart, and I love Samantha Bee, and I love Colbert, and all of them. And John Oliver, they're all brilliant. They all help us think more critically about the world. But they're entertainers, and their job is to take our anguish and our rage and help us feel less crazy and angry and aggrieved. And that, in a way, is an opiate. It's not a, you know, they're entertainers. That's their job, is to entertain us. And um, I, th you know, I think that's also a part of the story. I don't, I didn't want the book to just sort of be wagging a finger at unreconstructed racial resentment. You know, it's certainly good to dispel a false story like, oh, well, it was economic anguish that caused this sur upsurge of support for Trump. Nonsense. Mm -hmm. It's just bullshit. The political scientists looked at it. It's not what it was. It was racial resentment. It was what they call the authoritarian mindset, which is to find simple, punitive solutions to big, complicated problems. Build a wall, dot, dot, dot. And, you know, so I feel like you have to look at all of those things, each individual bad story, to understand how collectively we could, as a country, elect somebody who's manifestly unfit for office on every conceivable level. You think about explaining to our kids how the adult world did this at such a crucial time. It, it, w it requires a lot of explaining. We got a lot of explaining to do. So yeah, that's part you have of it. You have a scene where you're talking to your kid. Yeah. And my kid is like, like, you know, kids are not sophisticated, but they're highly absorbent. They really are like picking up everything that's going on. And so I have three little kids and you know, when my son Judah says, I, you know, he said, well, wh like, what happened? And I said, well, you know, there's the story of the false idol, you know, in the Bible. And when people are fearful and they're impatient and, you know, they, they look to something, a false. And he's sort of listening to this and, you know, me trying to kind of in my own ishkabibble way come up with an explanation for him. And he, he listens for a while. He says, OK, I got that. But what about the smart people who voted for Trump? He said, Papa, weren't there some smart people who voted for Trump? And then I had to say, well, yeah, they did. Well, why did they do that? Well, I think they thought he was a businessman, and they thought the government was broken, and that he would come in and fix it. And uh, Judah said, well, is the government broken? And I said, I don't think it's as badly broken as people say. I think that's a bad story. But like it takes some doing to explain to an eight-year-old how somebody who wouldn't even be allowed onto the playground is in the Oval Office, <laughs> right? <laughs> and you also have your friend who uh, voted not for Trump, but for libertarian. Yeah, yeah, so one of the central arguments early on in the book, a bad, one of the bad stories that I think is really characteristic of Americans across the board, although it's capital city is <laughs> on the right, is that our grievances are more important than our vulnerabilities. And so I had this friend who is a, a Harvard-educated researcher. Uh, I, lo I love him. He's a wonderful guy. And, but he doesn't take politics seriously. He's not interested in policy. And so he decided to vote for what he referred to as the drunk and the stoner, meaning the libertarian candidates. And, you know, that seemed like kind of an okay thing to do until after the election. And then, like voting for Jill Stein, it was a more complicated thing that you did. You may have had your reasons, but it contributed to a really frightening and uh, 
destructive result if you care about people's rights and you know the planet and whatever else. So um, I was talking with him after on the day after the election or a couple days after the election. It was a rather tense car ride, and I started saying to him basically like, "You're a scientist." You're a person of science. Y you know, the, the person who's now going to run the government doesn't believe that climate change exists, the established science of climate change. Couldn't be a more consequential issue for the entire planet and the country. And he said, basically, you're, that's why you lost the election. I said, you know, you're not, you're not taking it seriously. And he said, that's why you lost the election, that attitude. And I was like, oh, shit. We just, like, he just called me an elitist, um, which is a code word that people use when they don't want to have a serious discussion. But a few minutes went by, and I think he felt guilty. And he told me a story that I'd forgotten. And here was the story. About eight years earlier, <coughs> or six or seven years earlier, he'd gotten fired from his job. He had two little kids and he had uh, a mortgage, and his wife wasn't working, and he didn't have medical insurance. But he got medical insurance because Obama and the Democrats worked really hard to get the stimulus package passed and to have as part of that COBRA to extend medical insurance for people who are unemployed. This guy's bacon, in other words, had been saved by the f fucking government l literally six years earlier. And within that span of time, he had completely, he had no interest in what the government actually wanted to do, its policies. It's not because he's dumb, it's because there's a sort of American habit of thought that says, my grievances are really more important, or at least easier for me to handle than my vulnerabilities. People are always wondering, well, why would somebody vote against their interests? You know, why would people who are going to have their insurance, health insurance taken away, vote for Trump? Because their grievances, those goddamn, you know, immigrants, those, you know, uppity, nasty women, whatever their grievances, which there are many well-paid demagogues feeding them every day for, you know, big bucks, is more important than their vulnerabilities. Mm -hmm. And we've, as a nation, I think we always, when that's the story, we always end up with a bad outcome. Yeah, I mean, yeah. there is also, unfortunately, uh, an extent to which bad news literally does sell. And I think that Obama encountered that, you know, to some degree where he's saying, hey, isn't it good that this thing happened? And um, the news organizations were disinterested in that. And you talk eloquently and wonderfully about um, that fairness doctrine or whatever, the, the yeah. notion of a... The fairness doctrine. How many people know what the fairness doctrine is? Just a show of hands. So not a lot of you. And, and here's the crazy thing about the fairness doctrine. It's uh, sometimes you might wonder, like, how come, there's, how come there's media on the public airwaves, on radio and TV, that are just allowed to say shit that isn't true, that's openly propagandistic? Um, and the reason is because when mass media started in this country, right? The founders weren't thinking about radio or TV. They were, you know, pamphlets. That was like media at that point. But when radio arose in the beginning of the 20th century, a bunch of lawmakers were like, holy cow, this is really powerful. You can reach the ears of 10 million Americans simultaneously, more than that. And whoever controls these radio stations 
will control public opinion in this country. We better do something about that. We better make sure that the public airwaves serve the public good. That if we're going to discuss issues of public importance, it should be done so in a way that's responsible and that affords everybody's opinion, right? That's, that's essentially, you know, f so you don't have propaganda. And so they passed the Radio Act and that eventually became refined into the Fairness Doctrine and the Fairness Doctrine operated very successfully as a deterrent, as a spoiler plate on propaganda. It basically said you cannot just air one opinion about anything on the public airwaves. You have to allow for various opinions and a real vigorous and responsible public debate. Doesn't that sound crazy? Now, the moment that the Fairness Doctrine was repealed was the moment in which media essentially was deregulated. And guess when it happened? 1987, Reagan's effort to deregulate. And he essentially said the FCC, you know, uh, repealed the Fairness Doctrine, the Congress passed it, Reagan vetoed, and it's been dead since. And what happened the moment that it was repealed? The rise of right-wing talk radio. And if you listen to right-wing talk radio, as I am currently, uh, I don't anymore, but for many years, some diseased part of me, like, had to. <laughs> and, <clears throat> like, Trump just inherited their audience share. He inherited their ideas, this idea of white male victimization, the vilification of immigrants, uh, this kind of uh, jingoism, this raw ethnic nationalism posing as, you know, some kind of nationalist movement. All of it had its laboratory, this mindset that says that you can't believe anyone. And, and also, and Hannah Arendt talks about this, when a population feels displaced and frightened, they kind of want to latch onto one grand theory. It's called a telos, like one grand narrative of what's happening to make sense of their world. And that's what those guys do. And they only can do it because we don't have a fairness doctrine to say, you know what, Rush Limbaugh, we're going to have somebody in the studio with you to fact check you. Because what they're selling, their essential product, is a sense of moral surety. And that's a lot easier when there's nobody to oppose you. Mm -hmm. The reason the fairness doctrine was crucial is because it was the thing that didn't allow for these media silos. It said we have to have a national conversation. The platonic ideal was that cu culture begins in a conversation. And when, that, when the fairness doctrine was repealed, conversation was replaced by argument. A zero-sum game. Your su who's, tell me, don't tell me what you're going to do. Tell me who you're against. And that has been the predominant mindset. But it didn't happen by mistake or by happenstance. It happened because we changed from a public interest uh, a kind of uh, a media that was, was a fourth estate that was a public and civic institution, it became a for-profit industry and it became deregulated and now you have essentially a, a sort of shadow media, a second media that is more or less right on the same page with what Russia's saying. Mm -hmm. That the whole effort is to sow discord and to instill what uh, the historian Richard Hofstetter calls the, the paranoid mindset in American politics. Um, but that's not, so people don't know about the Fairness Doctrine, but the Fairness Doctrine has been hugely consequential to the reason that we now have this incredibly, this kind of epistemological breach where one set of people are allowed to live in a bubble where they don't have to listen to scientists.
right? And they don't have to listen to facts. They can make up their own set of facts. Um, and, you know, people don't know that. And so I felt it was important to say that didn't used to be the case. We used to recognize that the government really had some role in regulating the public airwaves. I, I think we should, it would be nice to hear, I sense there's itching hands. There's, there is a person. Itchy hands? <laughs> is rising already. Yep. All right, so the question is, at least starting with Nixon in 68, it seems like the Republicans are better storytellers, and why do you suppose that is? It partly has to do with that idea that it's much easier to appeal to people's sense of grievance than it is to appeal to their vulnerabilities. It's much easier to tell a story about that sows discord than it is to convince people that there's a common good. It's just easier to do that. It appeals to a the, the primal negative emotions. Um, it's the reason that Trump was so seductive, even to us. We hate watched him, but we were still watching him. Do you know what I mean? There's something very primal uh, that is seductive in a somebody like Trump or Ahab. They're a kind of unchained id, and they enact what I, in, in our very core, underneath all our good habits of thought and feeling, how we would like to behave without shame, without moral consequence, right? It's a kind of infantile omnipotence. I get to say whatever I want, I get to create my own reality, and nobody can make me feel guilty because I don't have an inner life. I think the Democrats have been pretty... Um, I mean, I think the left in general has not recognized um, how to utilize power as effectively. You know, so, and to just take like an issue, you know, Nixon looked and didn't say, what would be the right thing for the country? In 68, he said, if I oppose civil rights, I will strip the South, I will turn the South to the Republicans for the rest of our electoral history, which is, uh, you know, right? He just recognized there's a raw power play. If your only goal is to acquire power and you are unburdened by a functioning conscience, you have an advantage. Okay, do you understand what I mean? Have you ever played against somebody who just doesn't care about following the rules? It's hard to beat them. <laughs> it was in, I saw it was in, right? <laughs> it's hard to beat somebody who is unburdened. And so like something like gerrymandering, the Republicans just said, you know what, if we get control of the state houses in you know, 2010, we're gonna be able to redraw these districts and it doesn't matter that the Democrats are in the majority in Pennsylvania or Wisconsin or Michigan, we'll just fucking gerrymander the districts and then we will have a structural advantage that can't be undone. And guess what, they were right. Because if your interest, if your goal is just to grab power and hold on to it, and you're not really interested in the business of governance, you don't have to waste any resources coming up with solutions. You can get those from the special interests and ALEC who will just write up your legislation. Do you see what I mean? There's a structural advantage when you don't give a shit about governing. And all you wanna do is figure out how to poke people's emotions and stoke their sense of outrage and grievance and so forth. I'm not happy about that. I wish the Democrats were more impassioned. I wish that we had, I mean, I think Obama was trying very hard, but I think he was a guy who did not recognize right from the start that the other side was completely ruthless and had absolutely no interest at all in working with him, one bit. 
and he kept trying to be a calm, efficient, technocratic, you know, governor, you know, uh, tried to govern in that way. And, you know, like when the financial crisis happened, he should have been a good narrator. He should have said, this was greed. Here's how it happened. He should have gone on TV and said, this is how this happened. This is why your house got taken from you. And he, he, he didn't do that. I understand why he didn't. He was trying to work with Congress and get the stimulus passed. He was trying to do what he could. But I think in that moment, he failed to tell a compelling story about the corrosive effects of greed and the fact that Wall Street is, in essence, against Main Street. For the most part, they're, they're just betting on, they don't care whether Main Street succeeds or not. So, you know, I think it's always easier to tell people a scary story than it is a story that requires them to self-examine, mm -hmm. to confess and admit to their vulnerability, to appeal to their better angels. Um, you, know. you, you included uh, in the book some interesting hate mail that you have yes. received. I, um, you, I imagine, receive a lot. I receive a lot of hate mail. Yeah, I would think so. So, um, and I, you, you, I was wondering if you wanted to read a passage, not of hate mail necessarily, but from the book. And, and um, have any of your neighbors ever expressed concern to you about their safety because they're living in proximity to you? Um, I was wondering if I should wear Kevlar tonight, but no, we're, we're fine. I think when you're writing like a book. I don't think I'm on anybody's radar, you know what I mean? Like wow. maybe Michael Wolf is, but um, does anybody have letters from people who hate me? Does anybody have that little book? Do you have it here? Oh yeah, okay, let me read one of those because that'll give you, like my wife was very surprised that Trump won and I was not as surprised uh, and that's because I'd been hearing from his base for a while. Oh, thank you. Okay, so let me, yeah, and a couple of these letters uh, are included in in, um, in the book, but when you write about um, <laughs> oh, here's one when you write um, you know sort of lefty political stuff, you get a lot of hate mail, or I get a lot of hate mail, <laughs> and it, it's really fascinating because it's not the airbrushed Fox News stuff, it's the real deal. The real angry, it's uh, sort of the, the subconscious, it's the comment section. It's the, it's the uh, sort of unfiltered real right wing, extreme right wing. So uh, I'll just read a couple of letters, this will give you a sense. Dear asshole, <laughs> um, th these are in the, I think these are in the book. You're a fucking idiot. And your daughter in the picture on your website looks like a maggot. You're a disgraceful American, and it would have been so nice if you had been a passenger on one of the planes that crashed into one of the World Trade Towers on 9-11-01, signed Joseph Kelly. Now, the great thing about this book is that I get to respond. So here's my response. Dear Joseph, okay, you got me. My daughter does have kind of a maggoty look to her. <laughs> For a while there, my wife and I were able to delude ourselves. I guess all parents do. We'd tell people her skin was alabaster or sometimes pearlescent. We thought it might be the kind of soap we were using. But I think in our heart of hearts, we knew something was wrong with her. 
Then came her first interaction with carrion. There was some kind of dead animal in our backyard. My wife says it was a rabbit, but I'm almost certain it wasn't a possum. Anyway, Josephine somehow got wind of it, and we found her out there burrowing into the thing's eye socket. The neighbors came out to watch. It was kind of awkward. I guess it would be sort of like if you, Joseph Kelly, found yourself talking to some buddies at a party and you said, you know that guy Steve Allman, I totally wish he'd been killed in the 9-11 attacks. And this voice behind you says, yeah, totally, we should have killed that filthy infidel Almond." And you turn around, hoping to maybe give the guy a high five, only to discover that it's Osama bin Laden. <laughs> uh, here's another one. I'll just read one more of these. Um, and then I'll speak about why, why I think they actually matter. So this one says, Steve... You are such a pussy. <laughs> and it's, uh, it's written by Brian, Brian Holmes. And so here's my response. Brian, a couple of things. First, the word pussy is spelled P-U-S-S-Y, not P-U-S-S-I-E, which I think would lead most people to conclude that I suffer from an excess of pus. I do not. <laughs> Nonetheless, I get your point. You're not saying that I'm literally a vagina. You're saying that I'm a cowardly person. I'm not sure how the slang expression for female genitalia came to mean cowardly, but let's leave that aside for now. Here's the important thing. I'm not a pussy or a coward. I'm a chicken shit. There's a big difference, Brian, and us chicken shits don't take kindly to being lumped together with all the pussies and cowards and wimps and wusses. Chicken shittery isn't just some fad for us, some trendy lifestyle decision. I am deeply committed to running away from any physical conflict while shrieking in a womanly manner. It's in my blood. The truth is I come from a long line of chicken shits. My daddy was a chicken shit and my daddy's daddy and his daddy before him and so on that way back to the days of antiquity. In fact, according to family lore, one of our ancient forebears was a radical homeless pacifist who flounced around the Sea of Galilee saying chicken shit stuff like, if someone strikes you on the right cheek, turn the other to him also, and blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called the sons of God. You can just imagine what happened to that fucking pussy. So one of the things that's fascinating about um, these letters is that there's a persistent violent ideation that runs through them and also a per three or four of these letters uh, in the book are uh, refer to me or my family uh, as bugs or vermin. <laughs> it's kind of funny, but it's actually also eliminationist rhetoric. It's what the Nazis did. It makes it easier to kill people if you think of populations as being subhuman. And, um, you know, I was not surprised that there was this base because it's always been in America. And any, any person of color, anyone who's an undocumented worker, uh, anybody who's uh, in a vulnerable community kind of knows that. It was mostly sort of white America that was shocked uh, but c vulnerable communities have known 
for quite a while that th there's been this latent, uh, really virulent, angry racial resentment and uh, a kind of sense of enraged nationalism, we could call it, maybe. And um, I knew that because I'd been getting letters like this for quite a while. They mentioned work camps. You know, it's really there in their ideation. And if you do listen to what they're listening to, right-wing radio, and now it's sort of further into the conspiracy theories, it really is attempting to essentially say they're not just coming for you, they're not just coming for your gun they're not just coming for your family they're not just com coming for your they're coming for your life they're coming for your way of life and that is a very powerful story what can the democrats say we're hoping to get you better health care that is not as effective a story as they're coming for your life they're among you you know that's like sharia law you know that sounds to me mashugana but if I am, if I've staked my worldview to the idea that uh, you know I'm not getting what I deserve, and I can see that my economic fortunes and my sense of identity are eroding, somebody like that is offering a story that actually brings me alive. It doesn't bring you alive in a good, happy way, but it's very you know hatred and fear are very powerful, vitiating forces in our life. Why are we watch so much, why is Hollywood, the sewers of Hollywood flow with, you know, horror movies and violent, you know, violent death and all, you know, why is that? Because it's exciting to us. And the folks on the right know how to poke those primal negative emotions. And the folks who are worried and troubled by that had better get woke and, f you know, realize that unless we are super politically active, those are the folks who are going to run the country. Not because they're in the majority, but because they are more brutal and efficient in the exercise of their pursuit of power, right? And that's what we're really talking about. That's what's, what's happened. Would you ask another? Yes, there's a question from the audience. Uh, I think you said you had felt pessimistic for decades in your reading. Yeah. Well, uh, come on. I mean, you know, I, I feel optimistic like every time my son writes a beautiful song or my daughter plays violin or my other daughter stops screaming for a second. Uh, you know, I mean, the world is full of joy and, and wonder and beauty. Uh, so don't get me wrong. Uh, we, you know, the, the most profound effect you're going to have in your life is, is on the people around you and, and you should be joyous in your pursuit of connection with them. I mean, I'm really worried about the country, but I, you know, I'm trying to find joy where, where it really is. In terms of feeling good, I mean, you know, I was, I was really hoping that we were gonna have a, I think somebody who would have been, at least tried to be a very good president and the first female president. I think that would have been incredible. My daughter was so psyched. My wife was so psyched. I was so psyched. And, you know, that's not the way it went. But, and I didn't do enough, and I don't think any of us did enough. But I was hopeful about that. And, you know, I was certainly very hopeful uh, that, o you know, Obama and, and Michelle, especially, were the leaders of our country. I didn't think they did as, I wish that Obama would have been a better narrator, a better storyteller, a stronger advocate. He would have stood up more and recognized who he was dealing with. But I think it was, a beautiful uh, thing that a person of such seriousness and such an honest, uh, such integrity was our leader. 
I mean, you gotta be hopeful about that. That's amazing and wonderful, right? I mean, um, but you know, recent history, if you look, you know, you put your, you, you turn on NPR, or you, you put your head in the, the blender of uh, cable news and it's like putting your hand in a blender. I mean, it's just one bad story after another. And they, you know, the, the media still is trying to, <laughs> is still covering all of these bad stories, which are a distraction. When you tell bad stories, you're, you're not allowing f room for good stories. There's a good story out there, which is we're finally recognizing that guns demon or not, f you know, we've what people have known for a long time who are really experts in this, which is more guns leads to more shootings, but any effort to sensibly control weapons of death in the culture has been swept off the table by some lunatic idea of arming teachers, right? And that story just, because the media just takes it seriously. They're continually getting trolled by Trump. And it's, a, it's a, actually a collaboration because they know that if they cover his crazy ideas, w we will watch. And that actually redounds to us. We get the media that we deserve. Yeah. So if you know what I mean, but, but you started with the question of like hope. I'm full of hope. I'm a heartbroken idealist. That's where I'm coming from. Yeah, I mean, I do feel like there's also so much of what I see in your book is, is you're talking about shortcuts and laziness resulting in kind of these bad stories. And good stories, I mean, like, it, I don't know, like I heard you're teaching a class today at Hugo House and I heard, you know, riotous laughter from your full class of people who are engaging in good stories in some way. And I do feel like there's a way in which a good story, a nuanced story, I mean, studies have shown that actually reading good fiction and writing good fiction m show measurable, people who do that show measurable increases in their ability to feel empathy and to see other people as human beings who are different from themselves because of what stories can do when they're good. And um, we just had maybe slightly better stories and people were a little bit more careful about their storytelling, we might actually have like a better world in a, and not in a, in a woo-woo way, but in a really concrete way. Um, there would be less room for bullheaded, yeah, thuggery. Well, yeah, I mean, part of the, the book is partly also an argument for engagement with acts of imagination and moral imagination. I mean, like, I love, you know, literature kind of saved my life in the sense of, of allowing me to really examine my life and, and granting me the right to be precise about it. Uh, here's how Joseph Conrad says it. And this is a guy who was so famous for peering into the heart of darkness, right? But he never lost his faith in the, in the art of storytelling and the pursuit of art more broadly. Um, here's what he has to say, and I think this speaks to what Peter was saying. Scientists and thinkers, he observed, make their appeal, quote, to those qualities that fit us best for the hazardous enterprise of living. The artist, by contrast, quote, this is Conrad, speaks to our capacity for delight, for wonder, the sense of mystery surrounding our lives, to our sense of pity and beauty and pain, to the latent feeling of fellowship with all creation, and to the subtle but invincible conviction of solidarity in dreams, in joy, in sorrow, in aspirations, in illusions, in hope, in fear, 
which bind men to each other, which binds together all humanity, the dead to the living, and the living to the unborn. I am as hopeful as hell, but you know, like human beings are amazing. America is a great experiment in democracy, but it's fragile, and it's a lot more fragile than we realized, and it is on us to start examining the bad stories and figuring out how to tell better ones. You, all these bad outcomes are just the result of bad stories, right? So I hear a lot of people, you know, very anxious and more, but it's like, take a step back from history. You know, bad outcomes are, are the result of the bad stories that we tell. Maybe one more question? One more. One more question, last question. Maybe, yeah, yeah. Yes. Okay. Um, I'm really troubled about like how much of today happened within the last few years, and how much really started maybe 50 years ago, 40 years ago, and how we're going to change that because I think institutions, financial institutions, banks, corporations, really started taking over like in the 70s in a very subtle way, well before. Yeah, well, I, I would agree with you. Um, I don't think all of them have lost their way, but yeah, I think that there's a strong sense, again, that there's, it's, um, I don't think they're trying to solve problems. But that kind of, um, so you're talking about two things. One is late model capitalism and the kind of consolidation of, of, of power and the way that it influences policy. So let's go back to Watergate. What happened in Watergate? What happened in Watergate is a corrupt president, you know, was discovered, there's a little burglary, they were basically hacking the DNC, okay, they broke into the DNC, and intrepid journalists uh, found this out, and they, they discovered that there was a, a, a cover-up in the White House, and then they discovered there was actually a criminal enterprise being run out of the Oval Office. And Nixon was impeached, but it took two years, and that's not just a story about a corrupt president. That's a story about the idealism of a country that expects its leaders to behave, right? The reason that Nixon was finally impeached was because journalists investigated intrepidly and the public cared enough and eventually his uh, torpitude and his corruption affected his standing, his public opinion polls, and at that point, when he was at 26%, the Republicans in Congress said, it's over. But it took two years for that to happen, and it took a lot of idealism in our institutions. And after Watergate, they put in a lot of safeguards to try to keep money out of politics. We learned from that bad story. And over the last three decades, as I'm sure you know, all of those protections were stripped so that we now have huge amounts of money from the gun lobby and the Mercers and all these other psychopaths who, you know, drunk on Anne Rain novels, uh, <laughs> who basically think that their wealth, because they're so pathetically insecure, they think that their wealth 
is a measure of their moral strength and that anybody who's poor, it's because they're morally defective, which is essentially a, a eugenic point of view. That's just like a hop, skip, and a leap into fascism. Um, I don't think, uh, but it, is a it, it, is, it redounds to us to elect better leaders and to stop consuming bad stories and to start directing our attention to better stories that posit that the government is there to solve problems. One thing that is so eerie about 2016 is, again, a bunch of people broke into the DNC to try to undermine the Democratic candidate. And our entire fourth estate didn't ask two fucking questions about who did it. You know what they did? They published those fucking stupid emails, about three of which said anything even remotely damning about Clinton. I mean, they got a whole bunch of emails, and they just basically did the Russians work for them. Woodward and Bernstein said, who the hell broke in to the DNC? And CNN and NF MSNBC and Fox said, the latest revelations from the people who broke into the DNC. So, you know, part of this has to do with the fourth estate and its corporate agenda. You know, the head of the CBS, uh, said, uh, head of CBS, when he says something like, I'm sorry, I know he might be bad for the country, but Donald Trump is really great for CBS. Keep going, Donald. You know you are dealing with a for-profit. You know, the fourth estate is essentially bought and sold. But none of these things are just going to change overnight. They, they redound to our behavior. You have to f stop consuming politics as entertainment. Stop thinking that tweeting a funny clip of a C you know SNL clip on Twitter is a political act. It's not. You know, you, you have to actually become politically active in, in, at the local level, at the state level. And I hope and think that might be happening. But the people who are really wealthy and the corporations, they don't have a conscience. Where, where you have a conscience, they have a cash register. Don't ask Facebook to suddenly become a virtuous public servant because they're they're, their algorithm is designed to just aggregate our attention on their platform. They don't have a moral agenda. They have a business plan. So if you see what I mean, it really does redound to us. And I don't even think it has to do with trying to win over other people. I think there are enough people who really want the government to be humane and to, you know, afflict the comfortable and comfort the afflicted. I believe that. Uh, maybe not afflict the comfortable, but, you know, comfort the afflicted, okay, at least. Uh, I feel like there are more of us, but we're not as active. We don't take it as seriously. So that's part, like the last chapter of, of Bad Stories, the last chapter is the bad story that America is incapable of moral improvement. And that's not true because we rid ourselves at great expense of the mo essential moral stain of this country, right? Which was slavery. And it took us another hundred years to even begin to get our shit together, uh, but we eventually got the civil rights movement passed and we got suffrage, right? And the great society. And you know, Teddy Roosevelt said all the things you're saying about the danger of corporations and government and collaboration. He said it in 1910. It's not that America is incapable of moral improvement, it's that it's inconvenient and it takes work. And so that's, I think that's sort of where the book tries to, tries to land, so. Thank you so much. Yeah, so Thank anyway. Um, Thanks for streaming this extra episode of Speakers Forum. 
from KUOW 94.9 Seattle. Steve Almond read from and talked about his book, Bad Stories, at the Fireside Room at Hotel Sorrento on February 28th. Hugo House hosted the event. You can hear the full event on our website, KUOW.org slash speakers forum. And hey, subscribe to our podcast when you get a chance. We appreciate your clicks and comments. Tune in again soon. <laughs>